Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Welcome to Nobody Told Me. I'm Laura Owens. And I'm Jan Black. On this episode, we'll get a behind-the-scenes look at what it was like to work at Vanity Fair magazine during a magical time in the magazine business. Our guest is Dana Brown, who was a 21-year-old college dropout when he was hired by legendary Vanity Fair editor-in-chief, Graydon Carter. And over the course of 25 years, Dana rose up the ranks to become the magazine's deputy editor. He's written about this coming-of-age experience and dealing with celebrities, politicians, journalists, photographers, and the like in his new book, Dilettante, True Tales of Excess, Triumph, and Disaster. Dana, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you guys so much for having me. So kind of you. Congratulations on writing a book that is really hard to put down. <laughs> Amen. Oh, it's fabulous. Gosh, you're so you're so sweet. You know, it's funny because you you exist, and I worked for, with writers for for you know almost 25 years, and I'd never sort of been on this side of the equation. And it is a really like lonely, frightening thing to sit down with a blank piece of paper and, and start to write a book and then write a book. And then, you know, you kind of forget like, Oh my God, people are going to actually read this. I forgot like, Oh gosh. <laughs> um, but I've gotten such wonderful feedback. So it's been, it's been really gratifying and, and really exciting. And, and thank you so much. It's so kind of you guys to say. How did you first encounter Graydon Carter, the legendary editor of Vanity Fair, like we mentioned, and how did just a few encounters with him change the entire course of your life? Well, I, so in, in the early 90s, um, and I'm aging myself now, um, getting, <laughs> getting older, but uh, in the early 90s, I was, I was sort of like a wayward youth in New York City. Um, I was from New York, but I was, I was working in a restaurant, and I'd been working in restaurants for a few years, and I, I became a bar back at a place called 44 in the Royalton Hotel, and the Royalton Hotel was was and 44. This restaurant was like this sort of media and fashion kind of power lunch spot. Um, and so I started working there as a bar back and, and an occasional bartender when I was, I think, 19 or, or you know, just turning 20. Um, you know, and, and Graydon had taken over Vanity Fair in 1992 from from Tina Brown, who went over to The New Yorker. And, and they would all come and have lunch there every day. And Anna Winter and Cy Newhouse, who owned Condé Nast. And, and I started working these catering events at Graydon's apartment. You know, he lived in, in the Dakota, which is one of the most famous buildings, uh, residential buildings in New York on the Upper yeah. West Side. It's where John Lennon was lived and, and was murdered, actually, in, in the sort of doorway. 
And so I started working these these very fancy events at his at his house, these sort of salons that he would throw. And uh, mysteriously, I didn't even I just sort of kept my head down. You know, it wasn't uh, I wasn't angling for anything. And uh, out of the blue, I got a call after working a few of these. I got a call from the owner of the restaurant who said, Graydon Carter is looking for an assistant and he wanted to talk to you and uh, interview for the job. And I, I thought, like, he must be thinking of somebody else. Like, why? <laughs> this makes absolutely no sense. And he said, no, no, no. He, he thought you looked humble and hardworking and you should go talk to him. And so I went and I interviewed with Graydon. You know, I was I was had just turned 21 years old, hadn't gone to college, was not pedigreed like most Condé Nast em, employees and assistants and, and Vanity Fair assistants. And I, it was a very bizarre thing. But he told me, he said, look, I, I you know, I could have my pick of anyone to come and work for me. And, and I have had kids, you know, Rhodes Scholars, Harvard, Columbia Journalism School, and he said, you know, I just a lot of these kids thought that they could do my job and they didn't they didn't, you know, like to get the coffee and do the filing. And he said, I just want someone to come in here and just learn. You'll learn everything you need to know working for me for a few years. And it was almost like he was selling me on the job at that point, which was absurd. Um, <laughs> but I I somehow he just he just took a flyer on me and, and there was just he, he just had a gut instinct uh, about me that I didn't even have about myself, to be honest. Um, and it just, it opened up, it became my life, you know, I mean, it opened up a whole world for me and I, I was total, a total fish out of water. And I, I just sort of worked hard and put my, put my, put my head down and, and just sort of watched and learned and listened and, and made it my career. You know, I was, I was really lucky that he gave me that opportunity. And then I just sort of busted my butt, you know, to try to make sure I was, I was the best damn assistant he ever had. And, and, you know, never said no to anything. And, and, you know, if I had a task, I would get it done really, really quickly. And, and I just learned, you know, I learned on the job and, and the hard work sort of got me through while I learned. You were kind of burning the candle at both ends during that time, weren't you? I mean, you were working hard during the day, but you were kind of partying hard at night. I, I was, yes, I, I think I referred to myself as a car crash um, at that age. And I really was, I had sort of like, I had sort of like a rough, a rough, not a rough childhood in the classic sense, but, but, you know, I sort of discovered drugs and drinking at an early age and, and didn't really care about school. And so, yeah, I mean, I was like partying my way through, through New York and through Manhattan and through nightlife. And I, you know, working in the restaurant, I sort of, I, I, I was nocturnal. You know, my, I would wake up at four in the afternoon and I would go to bed at five in the morning. Um, and so this was sort of a big shift. But I, I what I discovered is that sort of publishing in the 90s. And I think it's I think everything's changed a lot. But publishing in the 90s was like kind of wild. You know, there were a lot of parties. There was a lot of drinking, um, you know, a lot of late nights, late nights out. And and I just I somehow made it all work. I don't know. You know, thinking back, it's like, God, how did I manage to do that? And I guess I, it's because I was in my early 20s. When you're in your early 20s, <laughs> you can survive on like three hours of, of sleep a night and somehow make it work. But um, but yeah, I was I was like hitting the town hard and working hard. And you were obviously making a great impression on people like Graydon. And that led to a lot of opportunities for you. 
I'm wondering what our listeners who are in a wide variety of industries can learn from you about networking and how to work a room when they're naturally shy and introverted. And young. Yeah. I, you know, it took me a while. It really did take me a while. And and I have to say, I have to sort of give credit to to the Vanity Fair staff and and the writers and the contributing editors, you know, it was a really nice group of people. You know, it, it, there was there was it wasn't like, you know, people people weren't out sort of trying to destroy others to better their own career. And and you know, it's funny because from the outside you would look at something like Vanity Fair or Condé Nast, especially back then, and just think it's full of these sort of awful snobs who wear expensive clothes and. Um, but it really wasn't. And, and I just, I, I, you know, I don't really have a great answer. I mean, I, I just, I just sort of tried to be myself and, and, you know, I didn't, uh, I wasn't like that. It's funny. I wasn't, there were a lot of kids who start their careers and they're really hungry and sort of over eager. And I wasn't like that. I was just sort of, I was just sort of happy to be there, you know, and happy to have been given this opportunity and and it just I got really comfortable there. I can't explain it. Like it's it's it was a place. It was like I was meant to be there. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? I really came into my own when I when I arrived there. And it's just like you know, like I said before, the world opened up to me. I just sort of became an adult and became a person and learned. And you know, I hadn't hadn't really had much of a traditional education, and this sort of became my education. Um, and and I did, I listened and I learned and I, I paid attention to things, you know? You know, I thought one of the really interesting points that you make in the book is you say that the book is about the rise and fall of a great civilization. Explain more about that, because I think that's a really interesting thought. Well, you know, the, the magazine business, and which is essentially gone, right? You know, it's it's not what it was, but for a for hundred years, 150 years, whatever it was, you know, it was a very simple business of, of you know, photographs, illustration, words, and a, a designer who puts them together and it's bound and, and advertising is put in there and that's your revenue. Um, it was, it was a, such a solid business for so long. I mean, I, you know, growing up, magazines were everywhere. Magazines were, were just as important as books and newspapers, you know. Um, I happened to have landed there at, at a moment where, you know, and I think it was partly like this sort of comeback of glamour in the 90s and the fashion business was was really rising in the 90s. So there was a lot of advertising dollars going to magazines. So the magazines were flush. So we were spending money. It was like this, this you know, I refer to it as a golden age. Um, and it really was. It was, it was, you know, magazine editors were stars in Manhattan. You know, they got the best tables at restaurants. They got, they were, they were so important and it really was this golden age. And then, you know, we didn't we didn't realize it was happening when it was happening until it was sort of too late. But technology came along and, and it was incremental. You know, it wasn't all it wasn't all of a sudden something happened and, and it ended. But, you know, it, it was just, you know, the, inter, the Internet arrived in email when I was there in the 90s. And we didn't we didn't think like, oh, this thing's going to destroy us in 15 years. We we had no clue. You know, we were just using it to sort of make plans in the office. And and the Internet in its early, early phases in the 90s was just like nothing. You just thought like, well, this is nothing like this. Um, you know, and then you just look throughout time and you look at, 
you know, the arrival of the iPhone, which I think was 2007, um, you know, suddenly everyone started to have this thing in their hands and they could, they could, the, the world was right there for them. Um, social media, you know, people were creating their own little pages. And I think the, the way I put it in the book was, you know, these people were sort of creating their own little magazines. You were curating your own little magazine and your own little world for your group of friends. And then that would grow and grow and grow. And, and it just had the effect of, of really hurting the magazine business. You know, the power was suddenly in people's hands and they didn't need to, they didn't need to look to magazine editors and magazines to sort of curate what to watch and what to look at because that was starting with algorithms, you know, and algorithms were starting to feed you like, oh, you should watch this if you like this. And then, you know, you, you think about Amazon, like, oh, if you like this, you know, it's telling us what we will like and what we should read and watch and eat. And, and that's, that was sort of culture magazine's job and, and role and role in, in culture, you know, and then in 2008, when we had the, the big crash, you know, and magazines lost a lot of advertising, uh, sales started dipping, which was also part, partly due to the technology. Um, we just, we just never recovered from that. And, and, you know, Google was, was starting to, to sell advertising and Facebook was starting to sell advertising and Facebook was growing like exponentially. And it was just all these things, this like perfect storm of, of things that just destroyed the magazine business right before our eyes. You know, we were, we were watching this happen, you know, and at first you think like, well, we'll, we'll write the ship. We'll figure this out. And at a certain point you go, we're not going to figure this out. Like this, this print thing is, is dying, is dead. And that's our whole business. And we don't know this, this internet thing. It's like, we don't really know how to make money here. And there's these, these Facebook and Google, and these people are, are making all the advertising dollars. And there was just, there was just no space for us. And so I, I and, and that's industry wide, by the way. I mean, like, I, I don't even, there aren't even that many newsstands anymore. When I walk around New York city, I, you know, I don't even know what magazines have ceased printing issues yeah. and are just online. There's so many of them, but, but so it was really, you know, I happened to be there in this arc of like, my God, this is booming. This is amazing. This is the best place to be. Everyone wants to be in the magazine world to just nothing, to just, mm -hmm. to just absolutely mm -hmm. nothing. And, and, and the industry's really been decimated, you know, financially staffs are, mu are much smaller. Yeah. Uh, there's less money for photographers and for writers. And so it's really hurt them. And, and so it, it's, you know, I did frame this book as sort of, yeah, the rise and fall of a, of a great civilization. And I just happened to have, have witnessed the whole thing. Well, is there anything that magazines like Vanity Fair can do to somehow save themselves? Is there any way that you see they can pivot? Because I, I like well, holding uh, oh. a magazine, you know, I, yeah. I like that. I like that more than looking at something online. Like there's something charming. If something is not, you know, time specific, I think it's I think it's fun. And I know my mom always loved Vanity Fair. Like, oh, my gosh. But but we're talking about back in the 90s yeah. and the and the, you know, early 2000s and everything. When the the period of time when you were there, when Graydon Carter was at the top, it was I mean, when that issue came in the mail, I was so excited because that was going to be what I would read every For night hours, before honestly, I would go to bed. It, it was, I looked yeah. forward to it and the long form articles and everything, you know, it was just such a great, yeah, I, I, listen, I, I, I hope that all these, and you know, Condé Nast has, has amazing magazines, which I guess they're, they're calling brands now because they're having to sort of branch out to so many other things, but Vanity Fair, Vogue, G, GQ, the New Yorker. Um, 
you know, will, will it survive? I think there will, there will be some version of print. You know, I, I think there will always be somebody who wants to hold that thing in their hands. I think the problem is there just isn't, there isn't the money to support it the way there once was. Um, you know, yeah, you remember those issues of Vanity Fair that were 300, you know, 300 pages, um, yeah. you know, half of which were ads. And, and we were charging about $100,000 for a page of advertising. And, wow. and the, the, you know, it was just, it was, it was a moneymaker. It was a great business. Um, and digital is much trickier. You know, it's much trickier to make that kind of money. And, you know, I write about it also is, is you know, magazines, it was a bit of smoke and mirrors with, with advertisers. I mean, we didn't have science backing up what we were telling them. You know what I mean? We didn't have, you know, it wasn't like, well, here are subscription lists, you know, this is, they make this much money and they're this educated and they live here and whatever. It's like, you don't really know that stuff. It's sort of like smoke and mirrors with advertisers and sort of like a sort of wink, wink, like, yeah, no, no, we have, we have, we have great subscribers and they all have money and they all want to buy fancy cars and fancy watches. And now it's like suddenly with the digital thing, it's like, well, we want to see how many people saw our ad. We want to know how many people read this story. And we, like, w- there's such a depth of information about consumers right now online that you can get that it's just such a different, it's just such a different ball game. And, and, you know, when, when advertisers started going to, and listen, magazines are about advertisers. Like that's the business. It and wasn't, the celebrities now it, can, they can make the money themselves with social media. They can take, you know, what does Kim Kardashian get? per per promotion per ad yeah yeah but but also it's you know and you brought up a really good point is like the 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 role that social media played in sort of upending celebrity culture you know they used to have to come to us you know the movie studios would like to see a movie star on a magazine cover because that says like oh they're still a viable movie star and they can star in this movie and we can open it and get people in that opening weekend and then suddenly it became, it started to become about followers. And, you know, if I'm, I'm a celebrity and I have 10 million followers on Instagram, it's like, I'm, I have this relationship with these people and I'm, I'm going to post the movie poster and say, come see my movie this weekend. They don't really need magazines anymore. You know, they can sort of control their own narrative. You know, why, why sit down with a writer and, and, and worry about what they're going to write about you? And you could just control that yourself with social media. What have you learned about storytelling from your years at Vanity Fair? What did I learn about storytelling? You know, it's funny. This is, this is going to sound like, um, like that famous speech in Mad Men where he's talking about one of the early seasons and he's talking about sort of every product has a story. Every product has a narrative. Um, but it's kind of true. It's like, there's, there's like a story in everything. And, and, and it really is about, you know, in any industry or, or anything, it's about, it's about finding the way to tell that story. What is that story? What is the story? You know, and, and whether it was a, a, a piece that was 100 words or, or 500 words or even a caption where you're trying to tell the story of the picture, um, you know, you have to sort of look, you have to sort of look deep to find the story. It's, it's funny because I do write about that and about having this, suddenly having this sense of understanding how a story is told. Um, and it's a really hard thing for me to explain other than you start to see it at a certain point and, and you can see when, when, you know, the story of a narrative of of a, like a narrative of a story and you're like, oh, I think this needs to come first because this tells me about this 
and this. And you just start sort of figuring out how to put the puzzle pieces together. Um, but it's it's one of those instinctual things. It's really hard to sort of explain if that mm-hmm. if that makes sense. I know that's not a very satisfying answer. No, I um, mean I I think that totally makes sense. Yeah. And you, you've been using your storytelling skills in a different way and have changed roles. I think it's just so interesting how you were able to pivot during the pandemic at a time when a lot of people didn't know what to do. Man, you had to reinvent you, yourself yeah. in a way. I, you know, it's funny. I mean, it's funny you say that. I I, st- I sold this book about six months before I before the pandemic, mm-hmm. and I had I had written a very big proposal, um, and I was like, oh, writing the book's going to be a breeze. Um, I have such a big proposal. It's thirty thousand words. I think I was contracted for ninety thousand or something. I was like, this will be easy, and I literally like I couldn't do anything for those six months after I signed the contract. I was like, what is this about? Oh my God, I can't deal with this. Shit, I really screwed up. Um, and I was sort of panicked about it. And the pandemic gave, it, it's funny, and I've, I've talked to other people about this, and it's, it has, I think, had this profound effect on a lot of people. And it sort of, it sort of made life small. And uh-huh. if you sort of accepted that, that, you know what? life can be okay, small. And, and I'm with my loved ones and my family. Um, but it also sort of freed me to, to sort of go through my past and my own sort of story and narrative and really try to make sense of it. You know, I, there, I, we all had a lot of time alone. You know what uh-huh. I mean? And I don't think I would have been able to write this book. I don't think I would have, have been able to sort of like, like really get to the depths of my head and and my life to be able to be a sort of honest and open about who I am and what I went through without having that that moment. And and I realized, you know, I've never written a book before. And I, I, I tried to keep myself out of this. It's funny when I pitched the book, I said, I don't want this to be a book about me. I want to I want to be the fly on the wall that saw this whole world and was in this world and was in this room, but I don't want it to be about me. And my editor kept pushing me and pushing me to write about myself. And, you know, how did you meet your wife? Like this, that, the other thing. And I really sort of didn't want to do it, but I did it. I I did it as much as I I could sort of do. And I think it turns out to be really important. And, And I think, you know, when you're reading someone's memoir, you need to trust this person that they're, A, being honest with you. Right. You know what I mean? And that they understand themselves enough that, that, you know, you need a sort of honest narrator to take you through this thing. And that was, that was, I found that to be kind of the hardest thing about this, about this process, about writing about myself is like, gosh, who, who am I? What am I? And how do I get that onto a page? But I I think I succeeded. I think I succeeded in sort of expressing and getting on the page, like, this is who I am and I'm imperfect. And, and, and I'm going to tell you the story that I went through and I'm totally screw up all the time but it was kind of great. And I think giving a reader sort of insight into, into your mind and who you are as a person is so important in memoir writing. And I don't think I would have been able to be that sort of honest with, with my words without the pandemic and without sort of sitting with my own head for, for a while. Yeah, I get that. I totally get that. You know, Dana, our show is called Nobody Told Me. And we always ask our guests, what is your nobody told me lesson. So what is it that nobody told you about life or, or reinventing yourself or your career or working in the magazine business? What, what kind of comes to your mind when you say, Hey, here's a nobody told me lesson that I had to learn the hard way that maybe 
somebody else could benefit from learning. I, you know, it's, it's so funny because I feel like for years I, I lived in such sort of fear of, of judgment of everybody and especially being in a place where everyone was so educated and so smart. And I just felt like an idiot half the time. Um, and, and I wish someone had told me earlier, like, just be yourself. Don't be ashamed of any of your backstory. Don't be ashamed. Just be yourself and don't care what anyone thinks about you or says about you. Like, it doesn't matter. And, uh, you know, in a funny way, I, 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 I did have a lot of insecurities for a very, very long time. But I also did manage to sort of accidentally just be myself. And that's how I succeeded. But I wish someone had told me that earlier. Like, you know, I used to sort of hide the fact that I was I was like a bar back when I was hired and I didn't go to college and I wasn't from a fancy family. And I would sort of never talk about any of that stuff. And I wish someone had told me like, like, own it, just uh-huh. own it. Like you are who you are. Just and be you're yourself. awesome as, as you are. We just, yeah, we no, just exactly. Like, <laughs> like feel, feel, feel good about yourself and just like, and do your thing and don't care what anyone thinks about you it, because it doesn't matter. And, and you sort of learn as you go through life, like everyone kind of feels like that sometimes. Everyone right. has yes. insecurities. Yeah. Like it doesn't matter. Like, like there was a, you know, there were, there were tons of kids who went to Harvard and Princeton, whatever, and all this stuff. And they probably suffered through that also a lot, you know, coming, coming into work that first day, like, God, I'm just not good enough. These people uh-huh, are so smart. Right. Like everyone sort of feels that way at one point or another. And you really have to get over it. And you yeah. really have to just like push that stuff out and just say, I am who I am. I'm, I'm, I'm here in this moment and I'm going to be who I am and do what I do. And I'm going to push all that other stuff out. And, and I wish someone had sort of told, I, you know, people probably did tell me that at some point and I probably just ignored them, um, <laughs> but it's like, but it really is like the best advice in life is like, just do your thing. Right. You know? I, right. I the, the young people say, you do you, isn't that the phrase? <laughs> they all use? You do you. And I, and I think, but I think it's like, I think it's a really valuable lesson. Like, you know, great things don't happen and aren't created by people who are afraid of that judgment. I mean, you look at great art, you look at books, you look at, you know, a new, a new invention. Like you just have to like, just not be afraid and just do it. You've got all these great stories and lessons in the book. How can people connect with you? And I think they'll have a great experience if they read the book or find out more about you and your writing and everything you have coming up. You know, obviously the book is available, uh, you know, on, on Amazon and in bookstores. Um, I did record the audio book, which I, I have to admit, I'm sort of too afraid to listen to um, because I hate the sound of my own voice. But I did a, f- a friend of mine downloaded it and has been texting me all day. She's like, oh, my God, I love it. It's so great. I, I'm on chapter eight. I can't stop listening. So maybe it's OK. Um, you know, I'm also I, 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 uh, you can follow me on Instagram at Mr. Dana Brown. Um, Instagram seems to be my my one sort of social media outlet that I've been sort of posting things about where I'm going to be. I have some some events coming up. All right, um, well, super, super. That's great. That's great. We yeah. have we have so thoroughly enjoyed talking with you. This is fun, and and I'm not kidding you. I read the book in one sitting because I was I I mean it was just fabulous. I really couldn't put it down. You you are so sweet. My mother will love to hear this. I'll tell her, I'll tell her that. 
um, I'll, t- I'll tell her that. But yes, my, my poor mother called me and was like, she was like, there's a lot of partying and, and drinking and some drugs in your book. I was like, yeah, I know. I'm really sorry, mom. But I had to, I had, you know, I you was young. Out of your I, was system. A, I was a kid. I'm all fine now. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> but anyway, yeah, um, you guys are so kind for having me on. Uh, this was really, really wonderful. And, and I wish you guys the best of luck down in, in beautiful Scottsdale. Well, thank you. Thank you. And we wish you the best of, of luck with the book. Again, our thanks to Dana Brown, whose book is called Dilettante, True Tales of Excess, Triumph, and Disaster. I'm Jan Black. And I'm Laura Owens. You're listening to Nobody Told Me. Thank you so much for joining us. 